This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas, climate change, and the politics around it. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Thank you, Jim. Happy to be here today. I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. in the United States. And we are we are probably us uh, and Brazil are probably the two uh, most scientifically literate countries when it comes to climate change. You know, their president in Brazil is rejecting the U.N. process and our president, Donald Trump, is rejecting all this nonsense. Politically incorrect guide to climate change, and I watched your documentary, Climate Hustle. Both were absolutely brilliant. I love it when I, uh, you know, people will say, you're not a scientist, how can you say anything? I'm like, well, my background is in political science, which is the perfect background as an investigative reporter to examine the evidence for global warming and the whole politics behind it, because this is a political issue. Make no mm. mistake about it. In my book, in my movie, and I have a sequel coming out April 21, Climate Hustle 2, Rise of the Climate Monarchy, we basically, it's one simple sentence. Climate change, global warming, is basically the latest uh, scientific environmental scare that the political left is using to achieve the ends they've been trying to achieve since the 1960s. And that's it. Mm. It's just the latest scare for the same solutions. If you go back to the 1960s, you had the overpopulation scare. You had you know, the whole Amazon deforestation yeah. rainforest scare. You had a global cooling scare. All of those solutions, and I actually can document this, all resolved. All the solutions were the same. Bigger government, central planning, international treaties, giving up sovereignty, wealth redistribution. It doesn't matter the environmental scare. And if you look at that, if you understand that, you can see global warming is literally the latest environmental scare to have the same solutions, which is yeah. the agenda. They don't want the agenda. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't want it evaluated on its merits. So they want to put a scare in to make you feel an urgency. We don't have time. We only have 10 years, 11 years. We must act now. No time to argue. We, we have to socialize America. We have to turn to socialism and, set and command and control government or we're doomed. And we have many predictions from Al Gore to the old UN. Some of my favorite are 1982, the UN warned of, uh, you know, a tipping point. I think it was, I can't remember if that was 10 years, 1989, they issued a 10-year tipping point <laughs> that which nations must act or it's too late. My favorite of all was Prince Charles, who said that we had 100 months and they did yes. the entire countdown to zero. <laughs> and then he announced that we now have until like 2039, when, you know, he can still make it. He's got great genetics. His mom's <laughs> almost 100. So he will be like near 100 years old, by the time the 2040 or 2045, whatever the deadline. But it's like a street preacher, you know, every time the end is nigh it and is, then when the date is. passes, they just cross it out and put a new date on. But the important thing is we can make jokes about that. Yeah. But the urgency, the point of that is to get people to agree to political decisions and policies they wouldn't otherwise agree to. And we saw this with, um, you know, in Hurricane Sandy, which mm. hit uh, or it was actually Tropical Storm Sandy, which hit uh, New York and Long Island and New Jersey. Uh, they went and, and we had IPCC scientists, Michael Oppenheimer, telling people that have just lost their homes, that it's going to get a lot worse, that this is way do you see what's coming. I mean, they're just doing this, scaring people into basically saying, yeah. we got to turn over our lives to the government and these scientific elites so they can centrally plan us to save us from calamity. Further, I actually was a... Um, investigative reporter. I did documentaries. I went down to the Amazon rainforest back in the 1990s and did a documentary, Amazon rainforest, clear cutting the myths, which came mm -hmm. out in the year 2000. 
And I have left-wing, passionate environmentalists screaming, throwing down the Amazon guidebook, saying, this is bullshit, bullshit. Uh, you know, it's not all the claims they made then about the Amazon. And one of the most famous, you know, the, the equivalent of the 97% consensus was, we're losing five football fields a minute, 10 football fields a minute, we're losing 50 football fields. It turned out it was a double accounting trick, that every time they cleared an area, it would regenerate. And by the way, the studies show that within seven years, a deforested area can be regenerated in tropical rainforest, and you can't distinguish between plant and animal life from the virgin forest, which doesn't exist. So so, you know, we went down there and debunked all of these myths on that. That came out, and this was during the height of that. And then that later faded. In fact, in 2000, I want to say 2007 or 8, the New York Times said for every acre of rainforest cut, 50 are being regenerated. Why is that? What happened to one of the greatest environmental scares? Sting's Rainforest Concert. Yeah. All the Disney films that had all these, no, rainforest is going to be gone. I remember reading children's books to my kids. You know, we must get to the Amazon before it's gone. It's the most intact forest on the planet. What happened was that uh, a little thing called urbanization. People decided they didn't mm. want to live in the jungle. By the way, that's politically incorrect. You have to call them tropical forests and wetlands. Right. Yes. And they didn't want to live in the jungle. They moved to cities. So they're abandoning the land to nature. You have much less pressure from slash and burn. Now, it's not to say it's not an issue. Still a concern, but one thing we know how to do is manage forests, save forests, reforest. Mm. Uh, it's just not anywhere a crisis like they claimed at the Amazon. So that's what got I cut my teeth in this whole issue. And from that, everything then switched. And remember, that was what Hollywood's big issue was mm. back in the 90s and 80s and 90s. Then it switched to global warming. And it really didn't gel on global warming until 2006 with Al Gore's film and then the UN report and then the Nobel Prize and et cetera. But of course, that's 40 years after it was global cooling. That's right. And I have a whole uh, chapter you know, in the book, and I have a whole yeah. section in the first movie, Climate Hustle, on global cooling. What they've done, similar to what they've done with a lot of temperatures, you know, the 1930s still reigned supreme in the United States for heat wave, and you can't change hottest day temperature in, in major U.S. cities. I mean, just records broken. U.S. EPA, even under Obama's chart, still showed the 1930s way up here and every other decade down based on number of record hot days. But they can change the average. They mm -hmm. go back and they do all these formulas, so they've cooled the past. Well, the same thing happened with global cooling. They now claim, and there's been studies claiming that the global cooling scare never happened, that it didn't exist, that it was overblown, and that climate skeptics are trying to make hay. I go back and I show all the old headlines. I quote yeah, all the old that. scientists. Some scientists like Steven Schneider actually went from global cooling alarmist to global warming alarmist. <laughs> and we had other scientists at NASA predicting it. And what's interesting is they actually discounted back in the 70s the effect of carbon dioxide to heat the planet. They said even a doubling, tripling, a thousand parts per million would not have the cooling effect because the effect would be logarithmic. The more you add, the less heat. They actually got a lot of what the skeptics are saying now. They were saying in the right. 70s. All that then switched to by the early 80s, there was a definite shift, still some global cooling, but it went, then in 1988, everything changed again with James Hansen, NASA yeah. had testimony, and the birth of the United Nations Climate Panel, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay, I started out by talking about the original, you know, think of it as the latest environmental scare. So if you go back, the environmental movement, 
essentially became radicalized in the 1960s. Rachel Carson's book came out, The Silent Spring, um, and uh, and that was a huge impact on people. But that wasn't necessarily a radical. It didn't necessarily was a radicalization. I would argue. The radicalization really happened with Paul Ehrlich and his overpopulation bomb, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 1968. It could have been 67. The book came out. And this book argued that essentially we were going to have resource scarcity, famines, mass, you know, uh, uh, problems across the Mm. globe. As the population expanded, people would be just fighting. Whole nations would cease to exist and that we needed radical solutions. And actually, some of the things he proposed and he was compared uh, to a you know essentially a Nazi philosophy at the time, he was talking about forced sterilization, adding sterilization agents into the drinking water so that huge set of, huge numbers of people couldn't get uh, you know reproduce essentially. Uh, so this was one of the issues. This was the big issue back in the 1970s. And Paul Ehrlich and I go back. You, I watched those Carson comedy classics, Johnny mm. Carson. Paul Ehrlich was a frequent guest. He was the, what I would say the original spokesman for the radicalization of that movement. He's the one that basically said, you know, we can't allow people to, he and John Holdren, by the way, which later became Obama's science advisor, they said that one of the problems was we had too much energy, uh, too much, too much in abundance, too fast was one of the biggest dangers we faced. And they lamented that people could get in their car, drive down to the store, get a six pack. So what you find back in the 60s and 70s is this mentality switching from, you know, this, the collective estate of, you know, of essentially bigger government to the environmental movement. They wanted to say that free people, free minds, couldn't basically make decisions on their own. They couldn't hop in their car, their gas guzzling mm-hmm. car, go buy a six pack of beer. That was harming the planet. We needed government with much wiser individuals to come in. You can read this in John Holdren, Paul mm-hmm. Ehrlich's old testimony before the United States Congress in the early 70s. And they want them to come in and start essentially centrally planning and micromanaging the environmental economy in order to save humanity and the planet and the species, et cetera. So that rode itself out. One of the greatest things, and I really have mentioned this in the book, John Lennon was on Dick Cavett and, and Dick Cavett was essentially represented the mainstream media at the time. He asked John Lennon what he thought about overpopulation. John Lennon, the ex-Beatle, said, I think it's a bunch of basically a bunch of hooey and there's nothing that's going to happen and it's overblown and it's mm. all going to sort itself out. And Dick Cavett was horrified. How can you say that? Everyone agrees. Blah, blah, blah. And John Von Lennon said, I know that. I don't care. This is not something I'm going to worry about. You could actually see that mindset of you must agree with this. You have to be a smart person. You have to be cool to agree with this. And Dick Cavett was stunned that John Lennon, probably the coolest person from the 1970s, totally rejected the scientific consensus. So that faded, though. And you know why it faded? Because Paul Ehrlich was made a fool out of. Now, Paul Ehrlich made all kinds of predictions, actually did a bet with another economist on all these different commodity uh, prices and and resource and scarcity of different uh, commodities. He lost on every single one. All his predictions spectacularly failed about famines, England being going up in a blue steam and etc. So what happened was the overpopulation scare faded, and I would say the 1980s saw the rise of essentially the deforestation, species extinction. I remember seeing all the National Geographic. That went into the 90s and to the end of the 90s. Sorry, sorry. Are you talking about about in the U.S. or are you talking about also Europe? I mean, that was the Margaret Thatcher era. Yes, I'm talking about the, when I say that, uh, the 1980s, I'm talking about U.S. specifically, but Mm -hmm. even internationally. I mean, there was no, climate still was not, Uh, an issue until the late 80s on any kind of scale. Mm. Now, you'll see all kinds of stuff. Oh, during the Johnson administration, there's a scientist sent a letter to President Johnson warning of the greenhouse effect. Well, 
it was involved. Bill Moyers was involved in that. And there was a whole bunch of scientists that they were always worried about the greenhouse effect. Right. Uh, you know, particularly the late 50s, early 60s. However, in the 1970s, an equally prestigious scientist sent a letter to Nixon warning about global cooling. So there was mm. always this, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book, yeah. this yin-yang between the greenhouse effect of CO2 versus the global cooling and you know what they were observing. And they were observing a temperature drop, which in many cases has been since been right. So anyway, simple answer to your question is, the environmental movement went into sort of a limbo internationally because mm -hmm. there was you know, there was the deforestation in Amazon, but it really focused and coalesced in the 1988. James Hansen came yeah. out finally, gave his ridiculous speech about the hottest year, and they yeah. you know they claimed they originally turned off the air conditioner. Yeah, then they later said he recanted. Uh, that was uh, the senator recanted and said that that's what he had been told, but it wasn't true. But they did all that. That splashed all over the news. The greenhouse effect is what it was called. It wasn't even really called climate change or global warming. It was just called the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect. Yeah. And then the UN IPCC was formed. And once that UN IPCC was formed, you asked how this whole thing got yeah. started. That became a self-perpetuating lobbying group. Within a year, a year after, yes, mm. in 1989, they gave the 10-year tipping point. It was Neil Brown, a top UN official. Okay. So what happens in 1988 though is. You start this UNIPCC. This is how you get the lobbying. Otherwise, it was very, you know, in the 1970s, we had, there were big scientific conferences, but they were just, it was all very, I would, I would argue it was decentralized science, which I think is much healthier because then you don't have grants going to just one thing. You don't have young scientists mm -hmm. like, well, hey, to make a splash, I need to study this issue because there's no money anywhere else. And this is where all the money's coming from because the politicians get involved. So 1988, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel, forms itself and they have one their mission to look at how co2 affects the environment they have no incentive to find co2 doesn't impact the environment catastrophically because right. if they find that they have no reason to exist and here's the bonus not only do they get to define the problem the un is also in charge of the solution that's what you call a double incentive so once that happened it was game over yeah. then you had all the corruption of the process later reports people like burt boland others uh, allowing all these, you know, the summary for policymakers, last minute changes that were never agreed upon. You had a few dozen people, you know, making these changes that didn't even reflect the underlying reports. It became a total political circus. It's the best politics that, best science that politics could buy, this consensus scientist. And that's really where the lobbying, and that's when we became doomed and stuck mm. on the narrative 1988 forward. A politically incorrect guide to climate change was actually a new edition, 2019, I added a bonus chapter on the Green Deal. Now, the Green New Deal is not just a U.S. thing. It's infected Canada. It's spreading through Europe. Interestingly, so I have a book, and then the movie came out in 2016, Climate Hustle. So the sequel, narrated by actor Kevin Sorbo, and I'm the correspondent in it, the reporter, uh, is coming out, Climate Hustle 2, Rise of the Climate Monarchy. It'll be at U.S. and Canada theaters, over 700 theaters. We're nearly doubling the 400-plus we had in 2016. It's coming out the day before Earth Day in the United States. So we're looking forward to it. And we go after not just the science. Yeah. We have a science update in this, but we go after the agenda, what's behind the scenes. Well, we go through and we show you how the U.N. got it. You know, we have the mm. U.N., uh, climate chief actually saying we seek a centralized transformation that will make life on planet Earth very different Always. for everyone. We have another top UN official saying this is not about the environment or climate. This is about wealth redistribution. Anyone who thinks that these this the you know the UN agreements are about the climate is badly mistaken. This is what Edenhofer, a top mm. UN official, said. 
we actually have the architects of the Green New Deal admitting that it's not about environment or climate. It's a change the economy type of thing. Two architects of the Green New Deal admit that the Green New Deal is not about the climate. What what and what number of countries from which continent do you think made up the largest delegations at the most recent UN summit? Africa. From African nations. Uh, the Congo, Ivory Coast, a whole bunch of, and I have the list website. Why would all these African nations be sending the largest delegations be the most gung-ho on the treaty? Gee, one of the reasons, and I interviewed Leon Lowe, uh, South African, yeah, yeah, uh, this I, was I, actually, I actually the Durban UN Climate Summit, it's one of my favorite parts in the book, where he actually says, the reason that the poor countries are signing on is the corrupt governments take this climate cash, the climate slush fund from the UN, and the UN is rewarding the governments best able to keep their their people locked in poverty, to keep their countries from developing. In other words, if you're high infant mortality low, um, and uh, low life expectancy, short life expectancy, and you don't have running water, electricity, you're very poor, you're living earth friendly. You're going to get UN funds for adaptation, <laughs> which can be translated into new monuments, playing off your political, paying your political fa uh, favors, getting reelected, ensuring your relation, building governments, naming them after yourself. You're going to keep getting that money. One of the reasons African nations are going because Africa is one of the poorest continents. Right. They love this. It's a way to get money. Yep. And the UN is brilliant because they calculated how are we gonna get governments to sign on when we're basically screwing their entire development future. We're gonna squeeze fossil fuels and limit them. And we're seeing this through the World Bank, we're seeing it through all kinds of international policy, the EU trade policies, everything from no coal plants to no to electric, to um, even nuclear plants and to even infrastructure projects in Africa are all essentially stopped in favor of like the UN chief who wants to give solar hut, uh, um, well, solar panels on huts well, made of dung in Africa instead. This is how they live earth friendly. Same thing though, going back to what we, I'm rambling here a little bit, but no, the no, same thing is, this is how the UN yeah. gets people to sign on. In Africa, the, the reason the leaders in Africa are gonna like it is because it technically means more cash. That's one of the things, that's what this whole fund is about. By the way, uh, when they, you mentioned climate denier, I have a whole bonus chapter in my book on the, um, uh, the the use of the word denier and not now people say oh it's not meant to be Holocaust I actually have person after person mainstream media politicians all directly comparing climate deniers to Holocaust deniers and this includes in the U S the CBS Evening News Boston Globe report on and on so. Here's what we're denying, if you were to use that word. We're denying that carbon dioxide is the control knob of the climate. If you look at the geologic history, we're actually in a CO2 famine mm. right now. Mm. And I like what Robert Giegengack, the former chair of the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League institution here in the, in the United States, said that carbon dioxide is not the villain as it's been portrayed. And the second thing we're denying is that there's a climate emergency right. slash crisis. And, and if that's what they want to call denial, that is that is easy one two three aside now what they've done and this is actually not in my book yet and it's it's actually on my website climate depot they turned the climate models now and the whole climate crisis into a climate emergency by using extreme scenarios the united nations was behind this there's a whole thing they use the most extreme outlier model scenarios and that has now become mainstream that has now become the media narrative the new study narrative the top u.n scientist narrative academia so instead of now talking about what could might may happen 
in a general sense in mid-range, they're now going to the most extreme scenarios. And this is how they got the climate emergency. And it's all based on they want political action. Mm. Al Gore said it best in an interview in the U.S. He said, of course, the United Nations reports are, quote, torqued up. How else are you going to get the attention of policymakers? That's in my sequel. I mean, he's admitting that this is a lobbying organization to shock people to act on climate, using science as a battering ram for political action. That's what this is about. It's not a conspiracy for one simple reason. There, it's all actually rather transparent. This isn't a secret cabal. We have, in the book I quote, I believe John Christie, climatologist from Alabama and former NASA scientist. He says he was sitting around a table with other United Nations IPCC scientists when he was part of it. And he said they were sitting around, they were actually talking, we gotta make the next report so alarming essentially that the world's gonna have to act. So then, I said, okay, let me look at that. And actually, in my book, I have quote after quote from UN officials to the media with those exact phrases. I mean, almost verbatim to what I just said. People like Rajendra Pachari, the old, the old IPCC chief, other UN officials basically saying, wait till the next, predicting ahead of years in advance what the next report will say on the science. Wait till the next report comes, it'll be so alarming the world will have to act. If that's a conspiracy, then it's a conspiracy. But there, it's a lobbying organization. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about building a consensus. And I have a whole chapter on ClimateGate. You can see what they're doing. It's like a political campaign uh, narrative. In other words, if they have science that doesn't fit the narrative, it gets rejected. There's actually in the ClimateGate emails, the released emails from 2009 that showed the top. 2012, UN... I think, uh, between that era. Well, 2009, it went into 2010. Then they had a second release, ClimateGate 2, maybe 2011 or 12. But it shows you know, top UN scientists saying, oh, we went to a solar conference and none of those scientists are buying CO2 basically as a control knob. We got to eliminate them. Or then so-and-so had this paper published against it. We can't allow this guy. I'm going to call that journal editor. They're not going to be part. They'll never publish. And then we had scientists themselves saying, I know when climate get broke, a name Eduardo Zurita said, I may know by saying these words, I may never get published again. But essentially, that you know, this is basically a corrupt institution. He went on to explain it. So there is no conspiracy in the sense that this is a secret cabal in a back room. This is all available for anyone who even wants to just lightly scratch the surface and read what mm. they said. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And in this new movie, Climate Hustle 2, we actually have the quotes and we actually have the people just admitting openly that this is their agenda. And one of the kickers we interviewed, I traveled to the Czech Republic to interview Vaclav Klaus, the former president. He was a essentially a Soviet dissident who was on the run, spent years in, um, I guess you'd call it uh, academic probation for trying to espouse free markets. He knows the horrors of central planning. Mm. He's come out strongly, not only a climate skeptic, but against anything the United Nations does on climate. And we interviewed Czech Republic members of parliament who say they went from being central planning imposed on them from the old Eastern Bloc nations to now central planning coming in the form of environmentalism. And he actually says it's a form of, there's no difference in the sense that they're one a mastermind from above. And he calls the climate narrative the greatest threat to liberty since the fall of the Berlin Wall oh, and the yeah. Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. So that's food for thought. And he's a very thoughtful, intellectual man from the Czech uh, Academy of Sciences. We spent a lot of time in the sequel on him, and I think it'll be an eye-opener when people see what he has to say about the climate agenda, comparing it to the horrors of the old Czechoslovakia under uh, under the Eastern Bloc. I was interviewed by uh, Nord- Norwegian TV about two months ago in Washington, D.C. 
they're doing a you know a primetime special of some kind. They asked me why is skepticism so high in the United States and so low comparatively in Europe and other parts. And I said, well, very simple. In the United States, the answer to the climate crisis is central planning, wealth redistribution, and sovereignty limiting treaties. That goes against the grain of America. So, in other words. Americans naturally say, whoa, wait a minute, what? What's going on? And so they start challenging the premise. In Europe, they're, they're, most Europeans have accepted all of the above. They've accepted the massive expansion, the socialization of essentially of, of all the you know, sectors of the economy and massive regulation. So when they come out and say we face a climate emergency, climate crisis, and we need to do X, Y, Z, the X, Y, Z they're proposing isn't an anathema to, Ameri to Europeans, isn't it mm. shocking? So they have no reason to challenge the science. Now, flipping that around, if the solution to the climate crisis in America were deregulation, free markets, more capitalism, you would have liberals howling that there's no climate crisis. I will concede that as an opening, open set masterminding from above in the words of the Czech Republic, you would actually want innovation, technology, and support of that. And the day that people can go to Walmart and buy a solar panel, put it on their roof and get off the grid is the day we don't have to listen to the nonsense of the climate solutions. But yes, I accept your original premise. There is a validity to that. And I think that's why Americans are skeptical. They're basically saying the left, the political environmental left is saying, we face a climate emergency. We've got to turn socialist in order to fight it. Are you an evil denier or are you on board? Mm. Bernie Sanders, in the case of the U.S., is the solution. So obviously Americans are going to be skeptical. That's why they've never been able to achieve in anything legislatively. By the way, never. Cap and trade, carbon tax, all down in flames. Only Obama was able through executive order, no vote of Congress, including the U.N. Paris, to do all of that. So the U.S. has never officially, legislatively, as a national, ever signed on to any of this climate right. stuff because even Democratic congressmen can't support the legislation. He's, when he went to Davos, this was, I guess, when was Davos, right, in early January maybe? It was the most brilliant I had ever heard President Trump. He said this was like the fortune tellers of old. He mocked them for failed predictions, mocked them on global calling. It was yeah. just, just brilliant. However, to criticize Donald Trump, the problem is he has not gone after he personally is very good and he's personally in interviews given all the you know, incredible stuff his uncle was a scientist and i can't remember what university but he's heavily influenced and donald trump knows all the points of this but none of his cabinet um, and none of his uh, advisors want him to talk about climate science or the narrative they just want him to talk about american energy and the energy renaissance he's been phenomenal and all that but the problem is this we have the most skeptical president in u.s history but he has not done any official pushback on the climate science narrative of we're doomed in a climate emergency. He had a man, Will Happer, 200 peer-reviewed papers, considered one of the foremost experts in the world on the greenhouse effect, as his science advisor. Yeah, Will Happer's left, eh? only mission, joining his administration, the Trump administration, was to form a presidential climate commission uh, made up of a dozen or two skeptical scientists, essentially esteemed scientists, probably Nobel Prize winners, and former UN climate scientists, and they were going to issue the first ever that I'm aware of anywhere in the entire world official government report mm. pushing back on the United Nations and these consensus statements from all these science academies. But every science, every national academy of science all agrees. Gee, I can answer. Let me just interject here. That's one of the things I hate that argument. I, the, every science society supports this. Are all those scientists wrong? 
Bullshit! It's two dozen governing board members of these organizations. In the case of the National Academy of Science, guess how much is government funded? 100% virtually, I, I think it's more than 99%, mm. relies on government funding. As Richard Lindzen said, if Congress wants the National Academy of Science to find climate in a, a climate emergency or climate crisis, by golly, they're paid to do it. They've advocated for yeah. carbon taxes. The head of the, Na the NASA chief scientist has called for carbon taxes. The former head, Na uh, Hansen, has endorsed a book suggesting the ridding of the industrial civilization is the only way to save the world. I mean, these are these are hardcore activists at their core doing this. And so what Donald Trump's greatest failure was he did not he approved this commission from everything I've heard. But his advisors kept delaying, delaying, delaying. And then it became an election year. And they said, well, we have to wait. Mm. And so Will Happer finally left the administration because he's, he's just not going to wait around forever. Right. That was the biggest missed opportunity because What's kind of happened here is the Republicans, in a way, have gotten weaker because you have the most skeptical president doing all these great things legislatively, but no official pushback on the science. So you have the media, the UN, everyone science. just drumbeating. Republicans are running scared on um, yeah, on the science. And so Republicans are running scared. So now you have the Western Freedom Caucus, the most conservative members in Congress, basically no longer challenging the narrative. They're basically saying, yeah, well, global warming is it could be a problem, but you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna plant, I think it's a trillion trees or billions of trees to solve it, and we're gonna you know, fight plastic waste, and we're gonna um, invest in carbon capture and storage. So this is what you end up with. None of them are objectionable because spending money in Washington is not objectionable. It, you know, that's bipartisan on both sides, and mm -hmm. we have trillion dollar, de trillion dollar deficits. And then the, the trees present a problem because we've already got overgrowth in too many areas. Where are they going to plant these trees? It's pure, I call it astrology. It's going to have no effect on global CO2 emissions. But Republicans need something right. to rally around, and that's what they're doing. So they're, doing, they're not doing anything necessarily you know, that anyone's going to oppose, but it's just kind of nonsensical. But they just need a talking point because they get bashed in the media. And that's Donald Trump's greatest failing. He didn't give us an official science commission to push back so that all these politicians could say, well, as the Presidential Commission on Climate said, blah, blah, blah. They didn't do that. Instead, we have nothing. We have the U.N. still standing, U.S. still basically supporting the U.N. science officially. And the national, not the national, but the national climate assessment came out through the Trump administration and no cabinet member would touch it because they didn't want to be seen as censoring the science. Right. So then you have the media coming out saying, Trump's own scientists disagree. It's an emergency. No, the National Climate Assessment was a U.S. federal report came out, I think, 2018. It had Obama holdover scientists. It had Obama's lead climate negotiator for the U.N. Paris supervising. It had Union of Concerned Scientists, left-wing climate scientists, uh, writing the report. It was the same report that had been written since the Clinton administration 20 years earlier. And somehow now the media says Trump's own scientists had nothing to do with Trump. But this is where Trump's failed. And I think mm. that's his greatest failing. And hopefully if he gets a second term, he can actually readdress that. Because without pushback, we're still reeling. There's a whole school of thought. You know, we're missing a atmospheric hotspot. Mm. Uh, there's things that are inconsistent uh, with some of the, uh, first of all, with all their model predictions. We're not allowing them to do it. There's all kinds of things. Skeptics are letting them get away with everything, mm. unfortunately, right now. Uh, in the sense of the hard science of this. Now, skeptics are not letting them get away with Green New Deal, UN Paris, all mm. the legislative stuff, because they'll go after them. There's three ways to look at it. A, these, these, these solutions that they propose have no impact on the climate, and they, um, 
when, besides having no impact on the climate whatsoever, there's no cost-benefit analysis. So they're going to cost a certain amount of money and have nothing. So it's not going to solve the crisis if, in fact, we face one. It's going to cost a lot of money and not give any benefit. And the third is we're not challenging that premise. And there's so much. I mean, you could replace what he said about the troposphere with polar bears. You could replace what he said mm -hmm. with sea level rise. There's all these studies come out. And what I always say is when current reality fails to alarm, make scarier and scarier predictions of the future. This is the right. brilliance of the other side. It's so bad that in my book, I detail one scientist who said he spent more time on the press release, I think it took three months, yeah. than his actual scientific study, which only took like two months. And that just shows you where this whole importance lies. The crafting, the narrative, all that. And that's where skeptics utterly and completely fail, except for the blogosphere. Right. Uh, the people like Tony Heller, Anthony Watts, Tom Nelson, uh, Steve Malloy, Junk Science, hopefully Climate Depot's in that group. We push back and we push back hard, Roy Spencer. All of these people, but in terms of legislation, in terms of actually people, legislators, and in terms of anyone in government, they basically all run scared except Donald Trump himself. And I mean that not just, I mean, even Trump's EPA chief, who's Andrew Wheeler, doesn't talk about the science, won't challenge the scientific premises generally. His energy chief was um, Rick Perry. He didn't really challenge much on the science. They just, they, they just deflected. They, no one wanted to deal with the science. They considered it a Vietnam quagmire. So that's part of the problem. So... Uh, but there, you know, in terms of specifics, troposphere, there's so many different issues. I get those all the time. Why aren't they focusing on this? Why aren't they focusing on that? It's very hard to do that. I, I actually issued a A to Z report at the UN summit in Madrid that I attended in Spain. Uh, you can go to Climate Depot. It's at the top of the website, climatedepot.com. You can get that, and it has a whole series of issues. It goes through all the stories of droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes. It shows you that not only are they not increasing, in many cases they're flat or decreasing. Uh, and it includes uh, sea level rise, by the way. There's a new report out about abandoning cities in the U.S. East Coast. It's subsidence. It's all based on models. I just did a whole report right. of all yeah. these scientists paying in on that. It's interesting thing. They'll talk about Glacier National Park, all these other uh, um, ice melt. If you go back, most of the uh, – I'm saying most, but a lot of this ice – and, and there's a lot of specifics on this. The climatologist, Dr. Pat Michaels, will actually detail some of this. A lot of this ice had already melted by 1900. So when they show pictures from like 1850, if they showed them from 1900, there was significant melting. And they also go in cycles. So one of the things is like particularly Greenland. And I actually got mm. to go to Greenland as part of a Senate fact-finding oh, trip. Wow. And it was, uh, this was in 2007. And they essentially Greenland was as warm or warmer in the 1930s up to about mm -hmm. 1940. You need to have all the old headlines. Tony Heller, again, should, should win the uh, Medal of Freedom for all of his flashback uh, newspaper article headlines you can find. But you go back and you see those and it's uh, it's all the scares about the Arctic, all the same stuff we're reading today. In fact, the Antarctic. And in the South Pole, if you go back to 1900, I have a report that says that, you know, it goes through all these cycles. They've been hyping sea level rise scares in Washington, D.C. underwater for over 100 years. And it just gets get, – all these stories just get recycled, recycled. I always say if your neighbor's going on a trip and they say we're taking a, you know, a, a four-hour car ride, you could say, well, you know, mm. your car could cross the center line. You could hit a truck head on. Your whole family could be splattered on the road. You could all die. And so that's what the climate scare basically becomes, is anything could, might, maybe happen. So let's make policy based on that, not actually look at what the underlying science is. Let's just say we could scare ourselves to death. And that's what this kids movement's about. When I see the Greta and the kids, I mean, there's signs that say, you know, uh, we're not going to be old climate 
climate crisis is going to kill us. We're never going to get old. Uh, thanks, Mom and Dad, for destroying the planet. You have Greta herself, the 16, 17-year-old, I guess now, saying, why should I go to school when we have a future that's no more? In other words, there's no reason to go to school because she has no future. Uh, it's, it's, it's tormenting kids, and adults who should know better are allowing this and it's encouraging it. They have kids in the United States signing on to lawsuits, basically saying the government isn't protecting us from climate. Uh, and Donald Trump's a denier. We're going to go to court to prove it. We have a whole huge section in Climate Hustle 2, the movie coming out in April, on this kids' movement. And we show the indoctrination happening to kids and uh, across the board. This is a way for government to seek more power and control. It's a way for the collectivist less to use this. Now, you, know, you, said, you mentioned the word conspiracy earlier. Well, here's what we've had just in the last year. Okay. You have Essentially, and President Trump's been detailing as he's pushing back, you've had a war on appliances, dishwasher, washing machines, even to the point where Consumer Reports years ago, low-level base model appliances from 20 years ago right. outperform high-end models today. Because in the United States, we have an Energy Star program that saps energy and water from all of our appliances in order to you know, save the climate, essentially, mm -hmm. in, in conservation. But they've gone too far to the point where... You have to put everything on the highest setting to even get you know minimal. And I've seen this with my own dishwasher. Uh, I think I have an old enough washing machine that may not be affected by it. But, but you see it. So you have that, and then you have uh, the war on cars. You have a Democrat presidential candidate proposing an end to private car ownership. He wants to see a roving fleet of electric cars that Americans would rent by the hour to use. Okay. Then you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren proposing a, a ban on fracking, a federal ban on natural gas uh, we fracking. We have that too. In the United States. Now, the reason the United States has led the world in CO2 reductions better than any of the other countries that have tried to shame us for not joining the UN Paris Agreement is because of the natural fracking boom. I just did an analysis, I posted an analysis about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago on my website. The International Energy Agency showed all the projections from, I believe it was 10, 12 years ago. Mm. Every, every scenario showed U.S. having all these emissions, but because of unseen technological advancements in natural gas fracking, right. we have blown away the world with CO2 reductions. That's what I'm saying. If we actually face the climate crisis, you'd want to support innovation, market solutions, and, and private property ownership. By the way, private property ownership has driven the natural gas mm. fracking revolution. People who give out their land rights, farmers who farms may be going under or barely getting, I think, can lease out their land for their fracking and they're making huge amounts of money in, in states like Pennsylvania, right. Ohio, then other states like New York ban it. Anyway, so you have that, then you have the UN issuing a report on meat eating. So they're going after the American yeah. diet. We have the former UN, UN climate chief saying, that if you eat meat, you should be treated the way smokers are treated in a restaurant, either thrown outside, thrown in a dark corner. It's all about this food police, regulatory lifestyle control. They're going after our airplanes. The Green New Deal wants to you know, start restricting airline travel and, and encourage train travel. Um, and then you go even beyond that. And then you're talking about all the, the land use issues, agriculture. They want to get rid of cows because of the methane emissions. They want to go from there. They want to get rid of, uh, you know, coal. And I mentioned fracking. And it just goes into banning plastic straws. I mean, yeah. every little thing. This is the climate agenda of today. It's about micromanaging, virtue signaling, all of it. And this is a big part of the book and my, my sequel. 
all of it to have no impact on the climate. My favorite quote yeah. is Robert Giegenkeck, even if we faced, even if none of the solutions they propose would have any impact on the climate, if in fact the climate were controlled by carbon dioxide. So I like to say, if we had to rely on the UN, the Green New Deal, uh, the EPA, uh, the Paris Pact, we'd all be doomed because none of this would matter. Even the UN models admit that you can't distinguish the temperature difference 100 years out, 50 years, yeah. 50 to 100 years out with the UN Paris Agreement, and, assuming everyone does what they claim to be doing. Yeah, George Carlin did a whole, it was a long routine. I want to say it was like 25, 30 minutes, all about <laughs> saving the planet and how we're so arrogant to think we can do it. And he went on to say that we're going to be just a bad case of, I can't remember if he <laughs> yeah. said, you know, like, uh, pimples or something, but that you know the earth will soon forget about us and we'll just pass like everything else. And it's absolutely true. Now, there's again the the success stories of environmentalism. People like Bjorn Lomborg are very good yeah. on this. You know, if you look at species recovery, Patrick Moore, species recovery. We know how to save endangered species. That's another thing. This whole UN report came out. I actually got to testify before the U.S. Congress against three UN scientists, including Bob Watson, the former head of it. I had more fun as Rush Limbaugh said than a human being should be allowed to have. <laughs> I got to call out. The, the scientific the bureaucrat, Bob Watson, former chair of the IPCC, for all the nonsense. I said, this is a self-lobbying organization. And Catherine Hayhoe, one of the climate scientists in the National Climate Assessment, always basically says, all these skeptics talk this big game, but then when you meet them, they're all you know polite and they're afraid to say anything. And so I was like, I took that to heart. I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to be polite. So I was like, I turned to the guy and I said, this is... This is what you're up. This is a scientific lobbying. You're bastardizing science. You're using the United Nations to lobby for your own self-aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. And the chairman of the committee, a Democrat, had to hit the gavel. And you know, even some of my own side thought I was a little bit disrespectful. But to my way of thinking, it's time to be disrespectful. Yeah. These are UN scientists who've been coddled in academia, coddled by governments, coddled by the media, no allowed dissent ever. They go off and they sign petitions supporting RICO statutes, which turns any skeptics into, or you know, go after you like you're organized crime or racketeering and jail us. And they're openly calling for that. They, they stand silently by while activists like Robert Kennedy Jr. call to be jailed. They need to be disrespected. So if your viewers want some fun, you can go in and look up uh, species hearing um, at you know Congress and see if it comes up. Patrick Moore and I got to testify at the video up. It was great theater, a lot of fun. Here's how successful it was. They got all this mixed media because we bashed them. And Patrick Moore was brilliant on the science. I went after the politics. It was so bad for the United Nations three scientists that they flew in from Europe that just about three weeks later, another Democrat-controlled committee in the United States Congress had to have a separate hearing, this time with no opposition, of the Gee. same exact three witnesses. They had to do a redo because the congressional record was spoiled because Patrick Moore and I were allowed to testify at the first one. That was a lot of fun. And I say to hell with respect when it comes to the United Nations. It needs to be disrespected. It's been coddled since 1988 as a form of bullshit. People are, oh, the world's top scientists. How can you disagree? These are, this is, a, you, you can't, this, these are the most esteemed but scientists. But it's the 97%. the gold standard of science. It's fool's gold. Sorry, go But Mark, but Mark, it's 97%. That's right. I have a whole chapter in the book, a whole section in my first movie, another section in the second movie, A Climate Hustle 2, coming out. The 97% is one of the greatest frauds. And basically, it's brilliant marketing because 
if you don't know anything about climate, you don't need to know anything. All you need to know is 97% of scientists agree. Who are you to disagree? Are you going to disagree with those four out of five dentists who recommend you know you chew the sugarless gum or the other gum? It, it, it's just nonsense. And that you know, Richard Toll, uh, of course, testified before Congress that the numbers were actually pulled from thin air. Well, no? Richard yeah. Toll is a is a former lead IPCC author. Yes, who who basically got so disgusted by the process came here to the United States to testify. He actually testified with um, Robert Oppenheimer, who's, again, the media's go-to top UN scientist. He received I don't, it was hundreds of thousands from Barbara Streisand, maybe even almost a million dollars. He worked for the Environmental Defense Fund. This is a guy who is literally on the pay of big Hollywood. Uh, but then, you know, another scientist, Richard Lindsay, I think got $2,500 once to cover his expenses to come testify in Washington by some group linked to fossil fuels. And so therefore he's a fossil fueled scientist for like a $2,500 payment in the early 90s. It's all they could ever find on the right. most esteemed MIT climate scientists. Other scientists on their side, Michael Mann winning award after award from these groups, the, the Heinz Foundation giving Hansen quarter million dollars run by John Kerry's wife. And then a year or two later, John Kerry runs for president. James Hansen endorses the guy who he received $125,000 from his wife. No questions in the media. We wouldn't question it. Imagine a skeptical scientist getting away. Oh, he was the media. He was not. He had. The, he had. The, he had the speed dial every major media organization. He always claimed he was censored, but it never made sense because there he was on 60 Minutes on Sunday night claiming censorship, spewing his scientific nonsense all the time. Uh, he ended up retiring. He's now signed on with all these kids' lawsuits to save the planet. But interestingly enough, he's a bit of a curmudgeon, and I respect mm -hmm. him in some ways because he's come out and called, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he called the Green New Deal a fraud and, and nonsense. Uh, you know, and he's called cap and trade and all these other solutions. Uh, he goes after the left because he knows the virtue signaling and doesn't mm -hmm. like it. Uh, but, but he's also involved heavily with these lawsuits of these kids trying to get them to for, they're suing because their future has been affected because the government isn't doing enough to stop climate change, which is yeah. just scientifically illiterate. I can't believe James Hansen would sign on to that. Bill Nye, the science guy you know, I interviewed, he's actually in my sequel, and he's talking about he's open to skept jailing skeptics because he thinks you know he thinks that skeptics are defrauding the public, and my favorite was affecting the quality of his life. Bill Nye's quality <laughs> of life is being affected because people like me and uh, Patrick Moore exist and speak out publicly. Uh, but Mike, in the case of Michael Mann, he's just winning some new award with another cash award. Michael Mann, okay, a couple things here. It's not, I'm not accusing these guys of all being fraudulent at all. In fact, Hansen is a true believer. Yeah, Michael Mann is a Penn State professor uh, who's a top UN scientist. He was heavily involved in the climate gate emails. He was involved in particular uh, in forwarding emails about people saying, get rid of all, you know, delete all your data before the Freedom of Information Act request comes. He passed along those messages. He tries to deny he didn't, he didn't do that. There were multiple inquiries into him. And I studied the whole chapter in the book on this. The one that was funny was his own university, Penn State, basically said, because Michael Mann is so highly cited in the media, because he brings in so much money, he couldn't possibly have done anything wrong. I mean, that's literally essentially what the report said. So the global warming establishment did all these investigations and cleared themselves. The global warming establishment conducted an investigation into itself and cleared itself. And that's what the media will always say. Well, they've investigated. They found no wrongdoing. And I have my chapter in the book. I leave it to the reader to decide whether there was any wrongdoing. And we have scientists at the scientists, one of them from um, 
Princeton University, Robert Austin, saying he sees it as scientific fraud, pure and simple, what happened. And I have, I have, I have scientists who were with the United Nations who comment on it. It's, it was an amazing collusion of the upper echelon of the UN doing all this. Michael Mann, heavily involved in that. Yeah, email hacker released November 2009, thousands of emails from the top UN officials basically showing that they were colluding to create a narrative by suppressing dissent, getting rid of data, studies, conferences, and papers that didn't support the narrative of a climate crisis. And they threatened journal editors, and they kept out any opposing scientists, and they had a tight little cabal on messaging. And I, the way I like to say it is it revealed essentially a campaign narrative. So think of it if you're running for president uh, or you're running for the leader of your country against an opposition party, you want to control that message. You want to make sure whatever gets out every day makes your candidate look good. So in this case, you want to control the science. You want to make sure that whatever's coming out of the science supports the idea that CO2 is a problem as identified by the UN and needs a solution as proposed by the UN. Anything that stands in the way of that has to be crushed, squashed, censored, dissented, threatened, eliminated. And that's what those emails show. The ClimateGate email, in fact, if you go to climatedepot.com, I actually have the entire ClimateGate chapter reprinted as a courtesy for people given it was the 10th anniversary of ClimateGate a few months ago. So you just enter ClimateGate book or something and it'll, it should pop up. But what was interesting here is Michael Mann's hockey stick, which essentially, okay, we had a guy, we had a scientist testify uh, before the committee I was on, I worked in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And actually, I wrote the uh, 400 dissenting scientists, later 750, later 1,000 dissenting scientists report. But he said, back in the 90s, he got an email from the climate science community basically saying, we need to get rid of the medieval warm period. Because the first UN report, 1990, showed the medieval warm period way warmer than current temperatures. It was a graph that could not stand because you can't declare a climate crisis when, when the temperatures were much warmer hundreds of years ago from 900 to 1300 AD without benefit of coal plants and SUV. It was a narrative problem that had to get rid of it. So come, comes along Michael Mann and he basically gets rid of that, flattens out the little ice age that followed and suddenly we have a flat line for 900 years yeah. and then a big hockey stick. So what's interesting about the climate gate emails and in my chapter which is available at climatedepot.com is we see what man's fellow UN scientists think of it in candid comments. They're all basically trashing it, saying they don't believe it, they don't believe it, they don't think it's accurate, they don't trust the science of it. His own colleagues are trashing his science and conclusions on the hockey stick. But they would not say that publicly. This is what they were saying behind the scenes. What you could say is 100% of scientists agree that the climate is changing. Climate is always changing. What I like to say is if you go back to the Roman warming period it was probably as warmer, warmer, and I have all the studies showing it maybe a bit as warmer. Then you go to the medieval warming period, it shows it was as warmer, warmer. So it all depends on when you start. If you start, and this is the interesting thing, modern thermometer records, 1850, 1870, U.S. is probably the best network, yeah. all started when? At the end of the Little Ice Age. So the actual thermometer data does show a warming. And that's what's so, that's what's so shocking about it is that it did coincide with that, but it's all about when you start. One of the biggest cons they do, and we have a group here, um, uh, it's a weather, uh, it's a group that gets TV weathermen involved in the climate thing. They use 1970 as a baseline for all these cities. So if you're a meteorologist in New York and one in Minnesota yeah, and one in Iowa, one in California, you get to say our city has warmed since 1970. 
Why are they picking 1970? Tony Heller had a great post of real science on this because it was one of the coldest years of the baseline. They picked the coldest baseline so they can show the most enhanced warming. If they had used, say, for instance, uh, 1930 or 1940 as a baseline, you would probably get a cooling trend in most of these cities. So it's just a con that they do. And then what they say is we warm this much. If this trend continues, you know, I always like to say, if you get your kid's growth up to age five and you say, if this growth rate continues, they'll be 35 feet tall by the time he's 20 or by the time he's 18. It's that projection of nonsense. And that's what, you know, all the funding goes so, to the scare areas of the climate modeling community. You're just shilling the fossil fuel industry. I wish. Here's the problem. In my book, I have a whole thing on funny. I would love to get the fossil fuel money. It's not available. ExxonMobil, I believe, it was a hundred. Yeah, give me a hundred, more than a hundred million to Stanford University to study global warming. The Union of Concerned Scientists said ExxonMobil gave over a decade and a half. Oh, I don't. Is um, what's the number? Uh, Fifteen to seventeen million dollars. This was the NBC nightly news in America. Big story. One study by the United States government agricultural department to study global warming at $20 million exceeded all the money ExxonMobil was ever accused of giving climate skeptics uh, over a decade and a half. It is such nonsense. We go through all the details and I, I show you that the top three skeptical organizations don't even equal the one, mm. uh, the donation from uh, the natural gas industry to the Sierra Club, which was, I think, $23 million. You can combine the top three budgets of the three largest climate skeptic groups in the U.S. who actually also do other besides climate science, just conservative groups, don't even equal what they received from the natural gas industry, which is a huge scandal, by the way, the Sierra Club getting all this industry money. Corporations want to give money to appear green. They're now with the all the silly narratives. They're all buying into this, all their corporate speak. There is no, it is a David versus Goliath, and, and, and you know, the climate skeptics are the David, and the Goliath is the global warming industry, and now the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to be negative, so they're yeah, pouring sure. in. The head of, by the way, Trump's big mistake was appointing uh, Rex Tillerson, former Exxon CEO, supported carbon taxes, supported the UN climate treaty. He wanted a seat at the table. He signed an Arctic declaration yeah. on climate through the UN. Luckily, he didn't last very long in the Trump administration, but that's an example of ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil would want nothing to do with me. Uh, but but I can tell you right now, the environmentalists love taking the money from them. They love to shake down the corporations, and the corporations love to give them money because they think yeah. you know, that they'll be less critical of them. Al Gore always says, entrepreneurial, this is the greatest thing. But Great. If electric cars, I just did a segment on TV, a debate on electric cars. If electric cars are so great, Fantastic. Don't come. People will want them. They'll get them. The problem is they're treated as though uh, all the, 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 the subsidies, tax credits, and they're mm -hmm. essentially forced on the public through EPA um, uh, cafes. We have fuel mileage standards in the United States. So you have to have a certain percentage. So, they, so all the car makers go to these fleets. Problem is no one wants cars. One tenth of one percent of one point one billion cars on the road are electric cars but if you talk to the electric car industry prosperity is just around the corner there's going to be electric cars everywhere. they're about to take off any day bullshit it could happen but the problem is they're going after the american suv they want to ban private ownership they want us to be forced to rent it so they made new technology the enemy I have nothing against electric cars. Let them develop. Let them compete with the internal combustion motor. Let them compete. I, I drive a Jeep Wrangler, which is actually the highest resale val value car running for many years in a row in both the United States, Canada. I'm not sure about the rest of the world. 
but it's because people love SUVs. Yeah. And if electric cars can get there, but electric cars have been the most subsidized, have been the most crony capitalist cars, along with solar, wind. We had another Obama-funded solar company go belly up here in the last week here in the U.S., so you can look it up at Climate Depot. They have been heavily funded, not so much under Trump, but still, they're never going to, that kind of funding is never going to go away because spending money in Washington is bipartisan wasn't, and not controversial. Wasn't Obama also involved in some green renewable deals, backhanded deals? I, I remember reading something about his involvement in some in some renewable uh, uh, deals. Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if he was personally involved, but his when he was elected, he did the green stimulus, tens of billions of dollars, went to all these countries, which led to the Salandra debacle. It basically became a crony capitalism. Uh, even CBS News, the liberal establishment, they did an analysis, mm -hmm. and I and I hope I don't get the number wrong. It was like seven. Seven out of nine, uh, seven, uh, yeah, seventy percent or something went to Obama donors. The money sure. for the green stimulus bill. So this is just the way Washington politics works. And I'm sure yeah, it happens on all sides. Uh, like I'm sure the defense contracts probably go to the, you know that way too. But that's the problem is when you politicize more of the economy and you get all these government you know incentives and the government picks winners and losers, you end up with a disaster. In the renewable energy sector, and that's where we are. You know, mm -hmm. they, the same thing with solar and wind. Oh, it's just around the corner. Oh, it's about to take. Oh, it's cheaper than fossil fuels. Great. When it takes over, let us know. Until then, stop banning and regulating yeah. out of existence energy that proven work that keeps people alive, that contributes to the greatest liberation of mankind in the history of our planet. Fossil fuels. And when renewables are ready, they'll compete on their own. Why do we need to ban this energy? Right. Why do we need to subsidize it? Why do you need to throw it in our face? Why do we need to ban private cars? It's bullshit. It's not ready. But I'm not against technology. I'm not against solar and wind. Someday, if it's there, it'll be there. I just don't want it to be forced upon us. Um, like It's like if you want to eat a steak, but you should eat vegetables, don't take away my steak and force me to eat broccoli. Let me have a choice, and I'll make my own choice. That's what it's about. But we're not allowed to make that choice because the planet can't handle it. These people are smarter. This is what the science – we have to listen to the science, and we have to regulate every aspect of our lives in order to save us. Bullshit. I mean, I've been to these conferences. When I was in the United States Senate, my round-trip airline, I still have the receipts, were like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars to places like Bali. I stayed at an oceanfront resort on the beach with luau's every night. I loved it. This was going to the UN summit, and I'm telling you, there were. CBS News even did an expose, and all the Senate staffers would go. Someone would bring their wives. It was just. This is one of the, that's one reason. But I'm not saying they're creating a crisis for that. But it's more about power. They then get to create the crisis. We have. We must act. We'll make the next report so alarming. Then they come up with a solution. They have the annual these annual conferences with with the UN Paris Agreement before that, Copenhagen before that, Kyoto, and now they're doing the you know. And the, all and the of other which thing haven't is they worked. Keep... What's that? All, all of which haven't worked. Right, right. I, I have a whole report recently on the UN Paris Agreement saved the planet. I got Obama, I got Al Gore, I got UN officials, all pre John Kerry, the secretary, all saying our future children will look back. Guess what? Three years ahead, four years later, it didn't do squat. All the same people are saying we're going to die. We need a new treaty. It wasn't enough. So don't believe them. So to answer that question simply, it's about a narrative and it's about keeping them in power. They believe that they're saving the planet. And they believe that they're the chosen ones, and they believe that only they can do it. So they they can't allow any dissent. They can't allow this to lose this momentum because they're being tasked with finding the problem and solving the problem. They're very important mm -hmm. people.
Don't you know? And that's what this is about. That's why they're never going to let go of this. Would, would the IPCC ever backpedal on its projections? Well, and many said they, they, they've always made little adjustments here and there. But no, I think what will happen is you're basically asking about the big narrative as well, too, here. Mm. It's the same thing that happened with overpopulation, the, the deforestation, other past environmental scares. I don't think – I think what's going to end up happening is it will fade away. A couple right. of points here. There was a movement saying that plastic waste was as big a problem. The former UN chief said ozone, it. Also now, the ozone. The ozone. But I think if they were ever going to switch into something new, it would be the species extinction. Um, because that's almost what they're, they're trying to tie climate and species together, which is really hard to do because most of this, as Patrick Moore points out, all the big species extinctions happened during the original, you know, in the uh, 1800s, during original land uh, settlement, like with the founding of America and, and things like that. So... I think species could replace it. So it's not old eco scares fade away and they're replaced immediately by a new one. But with climate, it's different in the history of the environmental scares because they sort of went all in on this one. So mm -hmm. I don't know how they would walk away from it uh, exactly, uh, but I think they would they would morph it into something else. Uh, and I think they're trying that with the with the species. And it's also become it's also become a lifestyle thing. You know, the whole yeah. thing with the ag UN agricultural report, they're calling for meat taxes. They want to make, increase the cost of meat. They want people to be healthier. It's become a nanny state thing, which is morphing into now where, you know, they're going after, and you know, you have Al Gore, by the way, poised to be the world's first fake meat mil billionaire. His company, he had, he went public with his uh, his meat company right before the big UN report came out, all the media reports, and his uh, the biggest opening IPO, biggest expansion. He's, he's raking in the money if this catches on, uh, and he's doing all this fake meat. And the, interestingly enough, I have a whole report on this. Actually, check Climate Depot. Nutritionists are even saying it's not healthy. You're better off with a lean turkey burger than with this fake meat. It's made with like 22 different things, lots of chemicals, additives, it's high fat content, but it's not meat, and so it's good for the planet. This sort of hypocrisy from development scandal that's happening, what's basically happened is the white, wealthy Western world, mm. uh, as by Europe and the United States, Australia, have all achieved our grand um, wealth and development. And then we have the audacity to criticize Brazil for wanting to use their natural resources. You know, this was like, how dare they? Oh, they're evil. Mm. Uh, where were they? You know, I interviewed a South African, again, Leon Lowe, who said, when Washington, London, Paris bomb their cities back and return them to swamps, jungles, and wetlands, only then can they lecture Africa on its use of development right. or its use of air conditioning in your case. Well, what ends up happening is, you know, you have people like James Cameron, the Hollywood director, who flies down to Brazil and stops a... Uh, um, uh, a big dam from being a hydroelectric dam from being built with Sigourney mm. Weaver, the actress. And then he has like three homes. He owns a submarine. He owns private, uh, you know, the most excessive amount of personal carbon footprint you could imagine. But he pats himself on the back because he stopped a huge development project that would bring running water and electricity to untold numbers of people in Brazil. Yeah, but he won't dare do that here in Africa. They do that all the time in Africa. And what happens in Africa is. You know, people are forced, again, they, they say they want to leapfrog. We don't want them to go through, you know, fossil fuels. They don't need it. They're going to leapfrog right to, to solar and wind. Well, solar and wind are ready, great, but they're not. So let's give them infrastructure. You actually clean up the environment with more fossil fuels. Not only do you help the trees. Uh, one of the greatest things is uh, uh, Viv Forbes from Australia says, 
that coal saved the whales. Before that, we were using whale oil to, to power and develop and for all this all these things. And then coal came along and saved the whales. So not only that, but in Africa and places with a the subsistence level of living in the dire poverty areas, you have fossil fuels come in. You build up infrastructure. You get water treatment. Suddenly, people aren't living in huts made of dung. They're not burning dung. They're not breathing in mm -hmm. horrible air quality. Multiple studies by World Health Organization of the indoor air quality of burning the dung and, and wood inside the huts. You have the water getting cleaned up outside as they're not using open sewage in places. And you have water treatment plants. You bring in things like modern dentistry. You bring in development. It's a win-win, and then people can start worrying about the environment. Uh, and then people, you know, in places like China, they're like, you know, in their massive industrialization. I, the, the reports I'm seeing are building a coal plant every two weeks. Uh, but they're eventually going to, you know, clean up their air, but it could take another decade or two because they're going through such rapid economic growth mm. that that's impossible otherwise. But they're say what you will, China's probably the wild west of uh, deregulation capitalism right. because the government just is, it's, they're such a big unwieldy country, they can't possibly regulate it. But China is going to be the beneficiary of all of these regulations because China's not going to follow them. China's going to continue to boom and they're going to mm. be, supply, as they are now, supplying the rest of the world with all the supplies. And here's the one last thought. The virtue signaling of the, of the solar panels they're made with cobalt, which I believe 70% yes. comes from Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. Well, what's going on there? It's Chinese firms, African firms running these mining operations, which Amnesty International is talking about, child labor, uh, exploitation, all sorts of things. Meanwhile, in the U.S., we basically regulated mining out of existence. We can't. I remember we interviewed a Chinese national company who laughed and said they don't have the same regulations as we do. He was doing lanthanide, a rare earth mineral, and the U.S. plants were being shut down because of environmental concerns. But we still use the products from countries that don't have the regulations. It's the whole concept of ethical energy. You right. know, we won't produce it ourselves because it's bad, but we'll get it from dictators and, and, uh, and, and countries like China with no regulations because we need it and we don't have to watch what's happening. Well, you know, at least groups like Amnesty International do follow that. You know, one thing I did agree with Greta on is when she, I got to see Greta at the UN summit in Madrid. Couldn't get near her. She had a constant entourage. But I liked her speech where she said, how dare you? How dare you lie to us? How dare you? Because she was talking to the, the UN leadership and the world leaders who sign on to the UN. And in my mind, she was dead right. How dare they pretend that they can control the Earth's temperature? The most absurd things are these UN summits where the world leaders are like, I will pledge to limit the Earth's temperature to two degrees. I'll do two and a half degrees, arguing as though you know, they can sit there 50 to 100 years ahead. I have a whole chapter on witchcraft. And, you know, uh, most of the judges at the Salem witch trials were educated at Harvard University, the best and the brightest, right? This is what we've been reduced to, believing that government policy and actions can control the temperature. Right. And if you believe nothing else from this interview today, is that government cannot control the weather, the temperature, the storminess. We have Chuck Schumer here, a top Democrat in the United States Senate, saying, everyone knows that if we had done more on climate, these hurricanes would be less severe. Oh, really, Jack? First of all, they are less severe. The 1940s were much worse. Uh, there was no... There's no evidence that the hurricanes are getting worse. In fact, they're probably uh, you know, even declined. And people actually believe that you know, every time there's a tornado or flood or drought, yeah. oh my gosh, it's due to global warming. And the other con is the hottest year, by the way. Yes. That is one of the biggest political statements. The hottest year claims are within the margin of error. They're within the margin where they adjust the temperature. They're within hundreds of a degree in many cases. And they still declare them hottest year, hottest decade. Yeah. 
it's nonsense this, and it's based on uh, you know, based on temperatures that have been monitoring since the yeah. end of the little ice age when we've warmed up. There's been analysis, Anthony Watts and others, mm. surface station projects, they've looked at even the rural areas versus the urban areas. And if you look at just the rural areas, they don't show any warming, at least in the United States. If you look at, you add in the, the, the urban areas, the cities, like for what reasons you're affected, airports, all the concrete, the asphalt, near, near air conditioning, heating devices, all sorts of things, all sorts of contamination. Now they claim they make adjustments for it, mm. but people like Pat Michaels, the climatologist, point out all the adjustments they make all seem to be in one direction, right. to show enhanced warming of the present with cooling of the past. And so that's that's the that's the issue here. So they've corrupted science, they've corrupted politics, they've corrupted the economics, they've uh, essentially bastardized logic by telling people that if we do X Y Z, yeah. we can have a controlled climate. We we can and, and it's all it's a it's a form of racketeering in a sense because they're saying I can't you know the climate is going to get you. You need to pay us. You need to turn over aspects of your life to us, and we'll take care of the climate. We'll protect you from it. We need with the UN Paris Agreement, the Green New Deal. This will protect you from that wild climate, and we need your help to do this. You need to turn it over, and that's what they're basically saying. It's a corruption of of common sense and logic, and we're going to get out of that as new class will rise of the climate. Monarchy was showing how this is like the monarchies of old. You have a little fiefdom of people. We have a whole section on Hollywood hypocrisy. All the Hollywood celebrities, all the activism that they do and the claims, and then we show them in the private mm. jet lifestyle, the the, uh, the uh, yachts that they're flying and the um, and the lavish lifestyle. In, in the same with the United Nations officials who live at 30,000 feet flying all over the world to conferences, there's going to be no change for them. They're going to put all these draconian restrictions on the rest of us because they have to save the planet. In my sequel, we have we have a whole section on wacky solutions to climate. And one of them is not only banning of meat, but it's also about promoting the use of insects. And we have a lady who's talked about how Earth-friendly it is. We feature Nicole Kidman eating a whole course oh. uh, of insects. Uh, and this is a whole part of it because they're protein, they're earth friendly, they're plentiful, et cetera, et cetera. Now, some of the animal rights people may have a problem with that because they don't want to see humans eat anything that's alive and they can feel pain potentially. It, it seems uh, But me. that's actually a big part of this as well. And uh, but we also go further. We have the guy, Matthew Lau, NYU professor. We have extensive coverage and interview with him. He wants to shrink humanity. And that's also a Hollywood movie, had a whole theme of that on global warming, shrinking humans for lower carbon footprint. He wants to medicate us with stuff to make us care. You don't care about climate change, the environment. We'll medicate you until you do. Yeah. And this guy's dead serious. So we feature him. Uh, and we'll and we go through the all acts of humans as well. Yes, smaller people consume less, have a smaller carbon footprint. He wants to genetically alter humans. Humans can both cool and warm the climate. Uh, aerosols can cool the climate. This was the whole 1970s global cooling scare. We were blocking out the sun. They were talking about putting soot in the Arctic. We warm the climate. So carbon dioxide is a greenhouse effect. You know, to the consensus. There are a few scientists out there who want to go after the greenhouse effect. Uh, you know, it's really irrelevant because the, the simplest way, and Dr. Fred Singer is, is a physicist who did the weather balloons for uh, NOAA and NASA. He says that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It has an impact, but you can't distinguish its effect from natural variability. And the more you're going to add, the more you're going to have less and less impact from CO2. So essentially, we haven't seen a CO2 signal, so to speak, in climate or weather. It's just yeah. not there floods, tornadoes, droughts, and we haven't seen it even in sea level rise. And I actually you know, have scientists, if you go through the book, I go through that. Now, the way they show a signal is they switch over 
to satellite monitoring of sea level, which is actually a little bit more difficult. And then the other way they try to scare you is with the models. But there's just nothing you can look at. Polar bears, even the temperature, as I mentioned, and I go through extensively on this in the book, in all the peer-reviewed studies showing the medieval warming, the Roman warming as warmer, warmer. You just can't make the claim otherwise. And you can't just say, oh, the hockey stick disproved it because I have a whole chapter on what they did with that. And I have contrary evidence. You can make up your own mind on that. But we're not unprecedented temperature. We're not unprecedented storminess. We're not unprecedented sea level. We're not unprecedented polar bear. The Arctic ice and all that. We have 1930s probably had, had less ice or similar ice. And even the early 70s, Tony Heller uncovered all these old uh, satellite images of the early 1970s. They picked... Uh, the United Nations picked areas they cherry-picked. In, in Antarctica, we've gained ice, so it's a seesaw effect. NASA study a few years ago showed that Antarctica ice, land ice, is actually contributing mm -hmm. to sea level warming. So if CO2 is a control knob or a huge influence on climate, we're just not seeing it in the data. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And so what they do all these scare stories, it's worse than we thought. You'll hear that over and over in the media and scientific studies and the press releases. What they mean is their predictions of 50 to 100 years are now much worse than they were of five or 10 years ago. The current data fails to alarm. They make scarier and yeah. scarier predictions of the future. Everything from tilt of the Earth's axis, water vapor, methane, clouds, uh, ocean cycles. So the idea that CO2 is that control knob, that is what the skeptical scientists go after, go after hard, and they try to show you that there is no signal of right. carbon dioxide-driven temperature or weather effects. And you go back, whether it's a thousand years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, nothing adds up to CO2 being the control knob of mm. the climate. In fact, over time, in the ice core data, CO2 leads the temperature. The CO2 uh, uh, temperature leads CO2. Temperature goes up first, followed by CO2. So uh, that's why, you know, you have people like the geologists. I mentioned Dr. Robert Giegengack just looks mm. at the data and he said he's not impressed at all by anyone yeah, who claims like that he's quite, he's quite blunt. <laughs> and he's a, these are politically left scientists, too, who, uh, you know, he actually voted for Al Gore, thinks he's a smart man, would vote for him again. But he's mm. appalled when he saw his movie. So that's one of the things I want to get this out of left right politics. Mm. And so I do profile a lot of left wing scientists in the in the book and in the movie. My book is a politically incorrect guide to climate change. It's available on Amazon or Border Books or wherever fine books are sold. Politically Incorrect Guide, it's a 2019, it was updated 2019 with a bonus chapter on the Green New Deal. Also, the movie is Climate Hustle, which you can also get on Amazon Prime, Vimeo, Apple, iTunes. It's a 2016 movie. The new movie, Climate Hustle 2, Rise of the Climate Monarchy. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please visit supportgerm.com.